review. Morning, I'm Sheila. Please turn with me to Luke 24. Before I read aloud this passage, please pray with me. Lord, our risen Lord, you were dead, but now death is dead. Love has won. You have conquered the grave. You rose again, and you offer us the free gift of eternal life. What a gift of grace. Thank you for loving us so much that you have not left us alone. Thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit who guides us into all the truth. Illumine the pages that are read and preached from, that our minds may be open to receive your word, our hearts taught to love, and our wills strengthened to obey it. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our returning King. Amen. So it's Luke 24 from verses 1 to 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm and peaceful scene. Then, suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, oblivious, apparently, to the situation at hand. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet, the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So, finally... 
with what I felt like was unusual patience and restraints, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing an awful lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and softly said, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think. And I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Suddenly, I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, I behaved differently. Everything changed in an instant. Well, you may well have read or heard of that scene. Stephen Covey famously wrote this, recorded it in his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He used this scene to illustrate something that he famously referred to as a paradigm shift. That piece of information, those additional bits of data, and suddenly your perspective gets turned inside out. Going back to Kobe for a moment. Can you imagine what I felt at that moment? My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with that man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Everything changed in an instant. One new ingredient added, and suddenly you have a whole different dish before you. Everything you thought you knew turned on its head. The paradigm shift. And what we have before us this moment, this morning in Luke chapter 24, it's the last chapter of Luke's biography of Jesus' life. We have in these 12 verses, the beginning of what I argue and what I will argue this morning is the greatest paradigm shift of all time. Bigger than Copernicus's observation that the sun, not the earth, was at the center of the solar system. Bigger than Newton's discovery of the laws of gravity and motion. Bigger than Darwin's origin of the species. Bigger than all of those combined. The ultimate paradigm shift. So come with me. Let's have a look. Luke 24. Let's get into the scene. Where are we? Well, we know where we are. We're Easter morning, Sunday, the first day of the week on the Jewish calendar. And it was only about 40 hours since Jesus was crucified. It's Jesus' followers that come with the embalming spices, his female followers, of course, because they are the ones who are most faithful. They are the ones, as you read Luke 23, the previous chapter, they're the ones that hang by the cross, the ones who follow his tomb on the Friday evening, the ones that spend their evening preparing the spices before their Sabbaths rest on Saturday. Eager, Potentially before dawn, they come to the tomb to see the body of their Lord. But the scene that greets them seems 
off. The first feature is the stone that covers the entrance has been rolled away. And this is no pebble, this is a sizable stone, no gust of wind, no mischievous adolescent is moving this stone. But then number two, not so much odd as shocking, is the body that should be in that tomb, the body that they have come to embalm with their spices, is rather noticeably not there. Shocking as that is, that's nothing on what happens next. We have our two angelic messengers, clothed in incandescent white, blazing white lightning, dazzling and frazzling them. But the shock is not so much the messengers, but the message. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Verse 5. He is not here. He is risen. Remember he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. We have pregnant in those verses this grand paradigm shift. What is it? Is it that death is not the end? Well, no, not really. Many religions, ancient and modern, believe in life after death, don't they? Anyone, and this is true of the average Australian who believes in ghosts or spirits, have some concept of life after death. So if that's not it, what is the precise shift that changes everything? It's this, it's that someone would pass from the land of the living into death's domain and return back again. That someone would be placed in a grave, stone cold dead, only to walk out three days later, never to return again. It's physical, eternal physical resurrection. That is the grand paradigm shift that one man would defeat death and come out the other side. Now we might, if we have a pop culture understanding of the ancient world, we might think, because of their superstitiousness, frankly, they're a bit dull because they're ancient, we might think that, well, this would be no big deal for them, because I'm sure back in the day, everyone had some idea of someone coming back from the dead. But if that is your perspective, you ought to leave it behind now because that's simply not true. The professor uh, N.T. Wright, a scholar who has probably done more on life after death in the ancient world than anyone living today, Wright says this, and I'll quote it at length. Whenever the question of bodily resurrection is raised in the ancient world, The answer is negative. Homer does not imagine that there is a way back. Plato does not suppose anyone in their right mind would want to come back. There may or may not be various forms of life after death, but the one thing there isn't is resurrection. The language of resurrection, or at least something like it, was used in Egypt. And it was used in connection with a very full and developed view of the world beyond death. But this life was something that had already begun. It was believed 
that had already, sorry, but this new life was something that had, it was believed already begun. And critically, it did not involve actual bodily return to the present world. And nor, to be fair, was anyone fooled by the idea that the dead were already enjoying a life beyond the grave. When the Egyptians tried to show their new ruler, Caesar Augustus, their hoard of wonderful mummies, he replied he wanted to see kings, not corpses. Dead people stay dead. That has always been the way. But we don't need to talk about ancient literature. I don't need to quote fancy professors and Plato and Homer. Look at the pages before us this morning. Look at how unbelievable, how incredulous resurrection appears to the first eyewitnesses. Think about our women to begin with. You have the angels reminding them that Jesus had already promised that he would rise again. And yet, what were the women doing? They were on their way to the tomb, fully expecting to embalm a dead body. Jesus may have said it, but they weren't buying it. But not just the women. What about our 12 or now 11 disciples? If you read Luke's biography, his gospel, on three occasions, three occasions he tells them that he will rise again. I will rise again. I will rise again. I will rise again. And yet, look at their response. In verse 9, when the women come back from the tomb with their story about stones and bodies and angels and Jesus' promise of return, how do the disciples respond? That's right, Mary, of course, we knew it was going to happen. Our bad, bring him out. Where is he? He's like, where are you, Jesus, you cheeky monkey? Verse 11, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Or as one contemporary translation that kind of gets a better feel for the vibe, and this this message seemed just stupid, useless talk, and they didn't believe them. Even our mate Peter, Apostle Peter, who was at least intrigued enough by the women's story, look what happens when, in verse 12, he ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. See, far from gullibly believing the claim, despite Jesus telling them three times, despite the women's message, they don't buy it. And it keeps on going. If you keep on reading this chapter, when Jesus does finally appear to him, first of all, they they think he's a ghost. And then when he says, no, 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 look at the scars on my hands and my feet, and you can touch me, and I'll have some broiled fish. Even then, their doubt persists for a season. Everyone knows that the dead don't come back. I remember uh, many years ago now, and you know it's many years ago now because I was in a bank waiting for a check to be produced. So I'm in Mandurah waiting for a check to be produced, and there's some two senior citizens behind me, presumably also waiting for their checks, and they get to chatting to one another, and they're loud enough that I can hear them. You know, they start talking about a friend of theirs who's passed. And one says to the other, I wonder where she's gone. And the other replied kind of philosophically, I guess we don't know. No one's ever come back to tell us. 
whether it's senior citizens in Mandurah in, in 2010 or whatever it was, or 2,010 years before that in Jerusalem, we know that dead people don't come back from the dead. But what if they did? What if someone really did come back from the dead? Not immaterially and spiritually, but really, truly, physically. That would change everything, wouldn't it? That would be the paradigm shift to end all paradigm shifts. And here's the thing. It actually was. So you see, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, or you think it's all garbage and nonsense and make-believe, the cold, hard truth, incontrovertible, undeniable, is that the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, that changed the world like nothing before or since. You see, it may have taken Jesus' disciples, his followers, a bit of time to actually believe what they were seeing with their eyes. But once they did, once fingers were inside, meals shared together, reality exposed, what it did is it changed 11 timid, cowardly men hiding away behind locked doors into men so brave and courageous that not only were at least six, probably eight to ten of them martyred, killed for their faith some 30 years later, emboldened to die for the truth of the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection lit in them a flame that torched the ancient world to the ground. Because as you read Acts, which is the account of the rise of the church and the evangelism that comes with the apostles, you see that the news which they bring everywhere they go is the news of the resurrection. And it spreads like wildfire across Europe, across Asia, across northern Africa. 300 years later, it's converted the pagan Roman Empire, killed off the Greek gods. Within a thousand years, it's touched every corner of Europe. 1800 years later, and it's spread across the globe. And what spreads with that? Well, yes, there were unjust wars, there were oppression, there was oppression, and the occasional unholy crusade. We'll own it. But what this message left in its wake was hospitals, education systems, universities, law, government systems of welfare, rights for women, and compassion for all. Our world was irrevocably changed with the resurrection. A mark attested to by the over 2 billion people that today proclaim Jesus rose from the dead. One Jewish historian puts it like this. Christianity is the most powerful cultural system in the history of the world. You might not like it, you might not believe it, but Jesus' resurrection broke and remade the world. Because if it is true, 
if he really did step out of the grave, victor of death and decay, then it does literally change every single thing you could think of. It means that feeling deep inside our bones, lurking in the depths of our soul is true, that there is more to life than this life. It means that our stories, our life stories full of spasmodic joy, fitful love, deep wounds and soul-rending heartache is not all there is. It means that if Jesus does step out of that grave, defeater of death, decay, and all those malevolent forces that collude and conspire against humanity, you can actually relax. You can put down your gun. You can soothe your anxious heart. You can rest your ambitions. Because it promises a time of ultimate justice of eternal comfort, of unending peace when Jesus' resurrection becomes our and our world's resurrection. It means entropy and decay is not the final word. Well, one author put it like this, it means death ends not with a full stop, but with a comma. But it doesn't just change the way we think about life here. It changes how we think about the afterlife. You see, if he did die and come back, then it should put to death our spiritualized spitballing, our novice-like navel-gazing. You know the type. You've encountered it. I like to think of life after death as this. I like to think that they're looking down upon me now. Well, I like to think I'll come back as a pangolin. Stop it. Stop embarrassing yourself. You need to zip it and listen to the guy that actually did come back from the dead. And it means this as well. It means the most important thing for you to do now, the most important thing for you to ever do, is to sit down and listen to the man who not only came back from the dead, but who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. It means that there's actually nothing more important in your life than whether it be reading a Bible, coming to church, or reading that book we put in your welcome packs. Whatever it is, do what you can to find out more about what Jesus says. Because if the Bible's right, if we're right, then everything changes with Jesus' resurrection. I'll, I'll close now with the words of an author and a journalist, a guy called Peter Hitchens, who captures far more eloquently than me the paradigm shift of the resurrection. the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. It is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. It alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibilities. 
It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and to work work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us as well. It is incredibly dangerous. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness, your grace, your generosity in sending us your son Jesus. Thank you that he died at the hands of sinful men, but the innocent righteous one rose, triumphant over sin, over guilt, over death. He changed the trajectory of the universe. I pray that if we know that truth, may we hold it more nearly and dearly. And for those that don't yet, I pray that you might give them the eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.